The one thing folks tend to want in preaching is a practical lesson. Something that they can walk away with and wrap their hands around. And some of the most popular sermons are those on how-to topics. Those with lists which promise ten ways to a happier marriage, seven ways to, to have perfect child rearing, five ways to grow your church, etc., etc. Practical matters are important for our lives, but it is noteworthy that Paul waited until roughly the halfway point of this letter to begin covering practical issues. And there's perhaps a lesson in that, because this section that we just started, and it's therefore, begins Paul's transition to the practical matters of the faith, as we see in just the first couple of verses. Therefore, the orthodoxy, the right doctrine of the first half of this book, chapters 1, 2, and 3, should lead us to orthopraxy, to right practice, as we see in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Everything we read in the next chapters will build upon the foundation of the first three chapters, never shifting from their theological grounding. So when we get to this point with the call to walk in a worthy manner, we must do so based on proper doctrine. Proper doctrine teaches the Ephesians that they are unified in Christ. And in this passage, Paul urges them, Jews and Gentiles together, to live according to this unity. They may have praiseworthy characteristics about their church, but they still needed admonishment in this direction. And similarly, we also need to hear and heed this exhortation. And so we'll note first our command to keep the unity, and then we will move on from there to note our creed to keep the unity. So we'll be looking at our command to keep the unity, and then our creed to keep the unity. So let's look first at our command to keep the unity. This is in verses 1, 2, and 3. And these three verses, these first three verses, focus on the nature of the command. The first verse will talk about the command proper, the actual command, while verses 2 and 3 give the characteristics of the command. And so let's just look at the command proper, verse 1, in which our unity is commanded. Verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And again, Paul begins this verse with a therefore. That calls us back to everything he has said before. He wants the reader to remember how Christ has won our peace with each other. And we'll see that teased out as we go through the text here. 
we've learned in the previous chapters of our unity. And now we are to live like it's true. <laughs> it is true, but we have to live like it's true. As you said before, brother, you can believe that that radio can make music, but it's not until that point where you go and turn it on <laughs> that you actually hear that music. And so now we have to believe that it's true. We have to live like it's true. What does he do? Well, he implores the reader here. And this translation carries a little bit more weight than simply admonish. Because he desires believers to have a proper walk. He desires this. And we understand that this is a command. This is something that he is telling us to do. He implores us to do this. And in fact... As we think about this, he's, he says, you are to walk in a certain way. Well, what does that mean, to walk in a worthy manner? Well, you know, in school, when children sometimes will get uh, yelled at by their teachers because they're not keeping those perfect lines, right? Because you're going through the hallway, you need to keep that perfect line. Well, there is a certain way in which we should walk morally or ethically. Keeping ourselves in line with the truth. Properly in our hearts and in our actions, making sure that we are walking worthy. And this is a command, that, or this is a concept, I should say, that he continues to use here in chapter 4. And we see it in verse 1. We see it again in verse 17, the walk. Chapter 5, verse 2, again, he talks about walking. Verse 8 there, and verse 15. And so he continues to revisit this word, walk. So that's why he is imploring us, because this is such an important point that we must have as Christians. Our walk is vital, and it must, at the forefront, be directed by Scripture. Now, last week, or last, uh, or as we we're going through the Psalms, you know, we um, could think about Psalm one nineteen. 105, which says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, as we think about lamps and lights, these are important things. In the dark, as the sun sets, we need these to be able to walk in a certain way, to walk properly, to walk without stumbling. Well, the word here is specifically what makes our walk worthy as we are following that word. God's Word commands us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, what does he mean by call here? Because there are a couple of different ways that we could read that. For instance, you might think of a call as a vocation. And if that were the case, then he might be saying, if you're called to be a pastor, walk like one, right? That, that, would, be, that would be an example. But that's not quite his meaning here. Instead, this is the other call in Scripture, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. The call with which God called us unto salvation according to His election. 
And so if that's the call we're talking about here, then this is a command to all Christians, whatever stage of their Christian walk they're in, whether they're still babies learning to toddle like, like we saw earlier, you know, just kind of walking along, taking daddy's hand to make sure that the baby doesn't fall or we are a little bit more confident and really the truth is we always need to take our father's hand to be able to walk we need to be led by the word we should be walking worthily worthily of the calling with which we have been called so the life you live the walk you walk should be balanced by the fact that God has saved you from sin and you should walk like that. You shouldn't willfully be engaging in sin. If you've been saved from sin, you should not walk like you're saved, like you're not saved from sin. If you are in the light, you should walk like you're in the light, right? Don't walk after darkness. This is something that Christians do struggle with from time to time. And they start to adopt the world's thinking on various issues. And they'll say, well, you know, like, you know, it seems like a lot of scientists, a lot of doctors are, are saying this thing now, even though the Bible says something else. Well, maybe we've been misreading the Bible. Well, no, the Bible is to be directing our walk. We never tend to ask the question, well, maybe the doctors, maybe the scientists are being led astray by worldly thinking. That's actually the case in many times. Now, it could be that we've misinterpreted the Bible, but we, that's why we need to be all the more careful to interpret it rightly, to divide it correctly. We need to make sure that we are interpreting it as, we, as, as we've been called to. But most of the time what we see is that Christians are more willing to believe worldly experts or believe what they see on social media, TikTok, whatever else, than what the Bible just says right there in black and white. God's given us a word. And so if we are Christians, if we're going to say we're Christians, we should walk as Christians. And say, yeah, the world may say that there are 109 genders, for instance, but the Bible says there are two. The Bible says there are two sexes. It links it to sex. It doesn't see gender as something that's separate from sex. And so we're going to get rid of all that worldly thinking. We're going to think like the Bible calls us to think. And if the world calls us narrow-minded if the if, if the world calls us backward because we're doing that that's fine they can say all those things they can say we're this we're that um, that's fine what does God call us well God calls us to salvation we should walk like those who have been saved out of the world we shouldn't live like people who are in the world so we should walk, and we should walk in line with the gospel. And that's the command that Paul has given unto us here. With that stated, Paul goes on to note the characteristics of our unity. Not only are we commanded or implored to walk in a worthy manner, 
He now characterizes that command. And so in verses 2 and 3, we see that. We see that it is to be a walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These are attitudes in which we are to walk. These are words that describe the proper gate to the proper walk. This is how we are to walk. And so, as we think about this, we're also thinking about things that, as, as we look at these words, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, these are things that are actually the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so we prayerfully seek the Holy Spirit's help as we are applying this. And of course, we know we can ask the Holy Spirit for help because of what the previous chapters said of our salvation. But as we think about this characterization of our unity, of our walk, these four items come out, and let's take a few minutes to look at the four characterizations here. First, the, our unity should be characterized by all humility by all humility. So typically, those in Grecian and Roman cultures despise humility. And the reason they did that was because that was seen as the proper attitude of slaves, of those who have been subjugated. Freemen should be proud and bold. We don't display humility toward one another. And that would be the way that the world would have thought back then about these things. But God said that he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. Moreover, Christ modeled this attitude as well as the other virtues listed here. And in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we read this. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this was a model that our Lord gave to us. He laid aside His glory. And by the way, don't be confused by what Philippians is saying there. It doesn't mean that He emptied Himself of deity. It just means that He laid aside the glory in which He uh, dwelled. And He came to earth and took on our forms, you know, which are less than glorious, right? It's not that... You know, we don't have our own beauty and our own kind of glory that God has, has bestowed upon us as image bearers. But uh, compared to God, we are, we are nothing here, right? And so he laid aside his glory. He took on this form that we all share. He humbled himself. So should we not also humble ourselves before one another? Our humility comes when we first define ourselves, as Scripture does, sinners by nature. Sinners by nature. It also comes when we accept that only Christ can save and sanctify us. We don't look to another. 
That's humility. When someone says, well, I, I think there are other ways to God, I don't want to think that this is the only way to God, that is a proud and arrogant person who says that. The humble person says, well, if that's what God says, then that's what God says. I will accept it. Humility also comes through our submission of what God, Scripture calls us to do. So, so there we go. And it, that, that's true all through Scripture, not just in terms of salvation, but in terms of everything about our Christian walk. When we look to the law and we bring out some of those um, general equity principles to apply to our lives, or we look to the New Testament and we are applying directly what is modeled there and what is commanded there, we are walking according to the ways that Christ has taught. Us. And again, that's a, that's a humble person that does that. Humility would keep the Jews and the Gentiles from thinking that one was better than the other, and it would also keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Humility isn't just thinking, well, uh, I guess I'm nothing. You know, that if if you start thinking about yourself more, even in self-deprecating ways. Your humility is a false humility. Think more of Christ instead. Get your minds off of yourself and get your minds on Christ. That's, that's humility there. And so we should have that kind of humility. And we, we should also have unity that is characterized by all gentleness. By all gentleness. Now... You know, just looking at the at the wording here, it is possible that the word all it could apply only to humility, uh, but it seems rather that it applies to both humility and gentleness. And that comes out a little bit in the translation because it says with all humility and gentleness, comma, with patience, comma, showing tolerance for one another in love. And so there we see that uh, the word all seems to link both humility and gentleness. And so we should have all gentleness. We should strive, in fact, to have all gentleness in the side of ourselves or meekness, which is another word that we could use here, meekness. Now, what, what is the advantage of this particular characteristic? Well, it would keep us from holding grudges, for one, if we are meek, if we are gentle. Uh, an example of that would be the Jew who is holding on to resentment for being oppressed by the Gentiles. And of course, there was genuine oppression that was going on there. Could you imagine a, 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 a Jewish farmer or a Jewish fisherman sitting in a church service with a Roman soldier? But the Roman soldier is sitting there as an equal. Moreover, it would keep everyone considering the well-being of one another, operating in self-control. Of course, as it's been often said, meekness is not weakness. Warren Wiersbe notes this, and he goes on to describe this. Meekness is power. It's power under control. Moses was a meek man, yet we see the tremendous power he exercised. Jesus Christ was meek and lowly in heart, yet he drove the money changers from the temple. In the Greek language, this word was used for a soothing medicine. A cult that had been broken 
and a soft wind. In each case, you have power, but that power is under control. So we should strive to have a power that's under control as believers. We should be characterized by gentleness, by meekness. And of course, that doesn't mean that we, we're just easy-go-lucky and we didn't, you know, we're just soft and we don't allow anything to affect us. That wouldn't be gentleness, that would just be softness. Meekness or gentleness is something where we have an informed idea of how we should be treating one another. And we are treating one another with a particular gentleness. That's what gentle man means in, 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 in the sense of the word, broader sense of the word. You know, someone who is, someone who is capable of going out and doing strong things and farming and even going to war, but he is uh, operating within polite society. Right? This is the kind of attitude that we should bring to the church. We understand that, yes, we all have certain desires, certain hopes, certain, certain things that we would like to see, but we operate within with meekness. We should also have a unity which is characterized by patience. By patience. And this is called long-suffering or temperance. A patient person has a long temper rather than a short one. They can take grief from others and not return it immediately. If you're wondering if you're uh, qualified for the pastorate, this is definitely an attitude that you have to have because you can't, you can't fly off the handle with people. And we see this with the next phrase, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now remember that tolerance doesn't mean believing what someone believes. People can believe bad things, and we can still practice tolerance toward those people. It's almost the opposite of believing what that person believes. It's accepting that others are different in thought and behavior and allowing them to be. And this is something that we're actually called to practice within the church. And too often we want to attack those who are different. And that's why the, the expression in love is so important here. And this is agape love that we practice toward one another. Uh, that is the agape love which is to be rooted and grounded as chapter 3 verse 17 says. And Paul singles out uh, this in Colossians 3.14. Beyond all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Why does love unify? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And of course, in case you're wondering what I mean by this, I don't mean we compromise conviction. Because, of course, there are pastors who are saying we need to prioritize love over doctrine, especially when it comes to hot-button hot cultural issues, uh, such as uh, someone's sexuality. But that would be compromised, because that wouldn't be allowing God to define what love is. Because God does give us, a, give us uh, a clear definition of what love is in Scripture, and He also models it for us. 
So no, we're not talking about compromise. We may, in fact, even need to, in love, confront errors sometimes. But when we talk about confrontation, we don't have to confront every little thing, right? We don't have to address every single personal annoyance that we have with someone. <laughs> we can let some things go. <laughs> Please let some things go. Uh, minor behavioral differences or perhaps unimportant beliefs. That person who just believes that essential oils can solve every ill that you have. Okay. You may not share that belief, but... Other people, we can let other people be on that. It's just a fun one that gets tossed around sometimes in church. <laughs> now, if you want to use the church to start selling things, we might have a different conversation. But we should be trying to preserve the unity and doing so by simply calling us to doctrinal adherence and, and to have practice discernment, that is a loving act. That is a loving act, and we can do that. But we also have to remember that what God reminds us of here, and that is that these things are to be done in love. In love. We have a certain attitude we're to practice. In fact, as we consider later on in Scripture... When Christ corrects the Ephesian church in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, he was not correcting them because they were refusing to strive for theological purity, but rather because they were unloving in their pursuit of it. They left their first love. That's an error that doctrinally sound, theologically conservative churches must avoid. We must avoid not operating in love. And with that in mind, the next characteristic of unity, our unity should be characterized by diligence to preserve the unity. <laughs> Our unity should be characterized by diligence to preserve the unity. Uh, we should strive for a zealous or an eagerness, by zealousness or an eagerness, to preserve the unity. It's worth noting, again, that we don't win this unity. This is unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. This is something that the Holy Spirit achieves. So we're not achieving it. We don't need to you know, change how we do things to try to target certain demographics, you know, change our music so that we can attract certain people in for in the name of some kind of unity. No, the Holy Spirit already creates the unity in the church. What we should do is to strive to maintain that unity with one another. And that means that we have to be understanding with one another. One thing that I've seen clearly as a father is that siblings don't always strive for that unity with one another, right? And I can say this as a sibling myself. 
I remember growing up, I didn't always strive for unity by being understanding and considerate of the other person and and thinking about the needs of that person and, and, and doing what I could to meet those needs and vice versa. So that that's something that we should see in the church. The church should be unique in that regard where people are serving one another and they are seeking to do what they can to preserve that unity. Christ has made us one body. And so we have that command. We need to be unified. And that brings us to the next point. Not only do we have the command to keep the unity, we also have a creed in order to keep the unity. We've already touched on some of this, but let's read verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, we, it's not wrong to strive for some kind of a theological unity within the church as long as we're doing it in love and we're doing it with patience because not everyone's going to be at the same place. Another way we might think about this is that we should have a certain creed that we all keep to. Now, churches should not be anti-creedal. I know in, in Baptist churches in particular, in Baptist churches I'm familiar with at the very least, uh, there has been a lot of anti-creedal um, commentary but as much as creeds are biblical, we should embrace them because they are helpful. And as far as biblical creeds go, this one is perhaps uh, one of the earliest that the church embraced. And of course, this is one that we can set up in front of ourselves and say if someone is believing that there's more than one body or there's one, more than one spirit, more than one hope, more than one Lord, more than one faith, more than one baptism, more, more than one God, then that person's an error. That person's an error. And so we, we should study these things and see uh, what it is that we should all collectively believe. Because if we are not holding to the same creed, we don't have unity. We don't have unity. And with the following verses, we, we note a series of numbers, obviously, with the word one being repeated seven times there. But there are also three verses with three elements of each. As we dig into these verses, we note that each verse highlights a different member of the Trinity. How fitting it was that we had that catechism question earlier this evening. And so we're, I'm going to divide these sentences into the three verses and, and, and focus on each member of the Trinity as we look at this. And so we'll note that the church is united in one spirit in verse 4. The church is united in the Son, verse 5, and the church is united in the Father, verse 6. So first, our church is united in the Spirit, verse 4. So we see one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. So let's think about the body, for instance. Christians are united into one body, we read. Now, of course, body is a reference to the church. There are many individual congregations, and those congregations can have different names on the sign outside. 
And there are different congregations within Scripture. We have the church in Ephesus, the church in Rome, for instance, and all the other places. But there's ultimately only one body of true believers, Scripture says. This is what we describe as the invisible body. This is the universal body of Christ. And this invisible body is only made visible through the local fellowship, such as our fellowship. All are unified through the Spirit and through His inspired Word. That's how we know that we have this unity with other bodies. That's why it's so odd, by the way, to encounter a Christian uh, who is not a member of a church. You know, you were just talking about this this morning, you know, folks who don't want to be in church. They claim to be members of the universal body of Christ, but they refuse to join somewhere with other Christians where that body is made visible. And it's odd. And it's disunity at best. At best, that person is practicing disunity. It's false conversion at worst. That person's just not a Christian. They, they do not have that membership in the universal body of Christ that they claim. Though the body of Christ is visible in the local congregation, there will always be tares amongst the wheat. So one way to maintain unity, then, is to strive for purity in membership and to call one another to repentance and faith in love. Otherwise, otherwise, the weeds will choke the fellowship. That's why church membership is so important. That's why church discipline is so important. That's why everything we've been reading here is so important. We should be striving to maintain this unity. That is the worthy walk. Well, Christians are not all... all, all just Christians are not just all united in one body. Christians are united into one body by the one Holy Spirit. We've already intimated this. The translators here have given the word spirit when it says one spirit. They've given him a capital S. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, this is the Holy Spirit who is working to establish our unity. We have... Our communion with one another in the church and in our homes through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has also inspired His Word, this passage included, to give us unity. So yes, we have unity in one Holy Spirit. And Christians are also united by the Spirit who is calling us to a singular hope. And note the passive here as we're going through this. He, Paul says, just as you were called. And so the Holy Spirit has awakened us from our spiritual darkness. And he has called us to salvation. The result of this calling that we talked about earlier is the production of the one hope, the effectual nature of the call leads us to expect it and to receive it. And as such, Christians have this one hope. Chapter 1, verse 18 talks about that. The Gentile needs not hope less than the Jew. They both share the same hope. They both share the same hope. The Spirit brings this unity, as does the Son. 
So we see that the church is also united in the Son, not just in the Spirit, but also in the Son. Verse 5, we see that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So Christians are united in one Lord, Jesus Christ. So this is the Lord of the church. You know, it's interesting because there's propensity today, or there has been in the 20th century and, and perhaps a little earlier than that, to, be, to feel connected with Jesus by making him look like you. Now, we really could go all the way back to the Middle Ages with this. It was a time when people typically traveled less, but some of the p famous paintings in the Middle Ages made Jesus look like them, a European. The blonde hair, blue eyes, all, all of that. Or maybe brown hair and, and, and blue eyes or something, something similar to that, but, but definitely a white guy. And with the rise of liberation theologies, we saw this begin to change in some of this. We saw an influx of Jesus paintings, which depicted him with various ethnicities, with the various groups who felt oppressed. And so you can see pictures of Jesus where he is uh, black or South American or um, Chinese, Asian of some kind, uh, various ethnicities. Well, what was he? Historically, he was an average-looking Middle Eastern man, right? But we don't really need Jesus to look like us, to have one Lord. He's one Lord over the Jews and the Gentiles, we read here. He is the one Lord. And so we just accept him as he is. And I would say we don't particularly need pictures of him anyway. <laughs> but that's a discussion for another day. We are united in Christ with one Lord. We are united in one faith in Christ as well. There's some question as to whether this refers to the simple act of believing in Jesus, when we talk about the one faith, sometimes we read about the faith of Jesus. Is this talking about his faith? Is this talking about uh, believing in him? Jude 3 talks about the content of faith, right? On the one hand, Paul may be emphasizing the fact that Jews and Gentiles come to the Lord through the same act of faith, as the Jerusalem Council determined in Acts 15, there's no real difference between the Jews and the Gentiles here. We could, or we can imagine, how a local church would have its unity dissolve if people were allowed to join regardless of whether they believed in Jesus. And sadly, I think there are some churches now within the SBC and elsewhere that do allow people to join uh, regardless of where they are in their spiritual walks. On the other hand, Paul may be emphasizing unity around core doctrine. And that's what this whole section seems to emphasize. The local church would fracture if various beliefs about Jesus or salvation were entertained. So there is a link there. But of course, this doesn't preclude the first option. So, so they, can, they can both be correct. A Christian 
or Christians within the church should have core convictions and they should have a profession of faith in Christ. Which brings us to the next point. There's all, they are also united in one baptism into Christ. And there are also disagreements here. This may, be re this may be referring to the unifying work of the Holy Spirit uh, in baptism. 1 Corinthians 12.13 talks about the baptism of the Spirit there. This would be synonymous with the work of Christ, the baptism of the Messiah that John the Baptist predicted. And it's only through the Holy Spirit's work that we can have true unity. Although we have already talked about the Holy Spirit. And so there is another option here. Most commentaries think this is referring to water baptism. We have one water baptism. And this would emphasize unity how? Well, we all are being publicly united as someone publicly professes faith, whether Jew or Gentile, passing through the same baptismal waters. Perhaps this also highlights the importance of the believer's baptism by immersion, I would say, as a Baptist. Um, uh, Romans 6, I think, illustrates that. But we share the same baptism, the same kind of baptism, a baptism that professes our faith in the crucified, buried, and resurrected Lord Jesus. Who is also, by the way, baptized to fulfill all righteousness, creating a connection between what he did and what we do. So we have unity in the Son. We have unity in the Son. We have unity in the Spirit. We also have unity in the Father. The church is unified or united in the Father. Verse 6, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And so this is the Trinitarian formula coming to a close. We have the Spirit, we have the Son, now we have the Father. We would be mistaken to think that these are three gods. Of course, these are not three gods. We saw that last week in our uh, affirmation of faith. This is just one God we're talking about, but there are three persons within the Godhead. That's the Trinity. And what do we see with the Father here specifically? What, what is Paul highlighting with the Father? First, that the Father is sovereign over all believers. He's sovereign over all believers. It's not that there's just a group of, uh, or a God for the group of Jews who are in the church and then a God for the Gentiles. There are some people who think there's a God in the Old Testament and a God in the New Testament. Jesus is the God of the New Testament. Jehovah or Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament. And one's mean, one's nice. No, no, it doesn't work that way. This is the same, same God. And this same God has spoken. He's spoken. When kids are fighting in the back seat and father speaks up, there is suddenly a little bit of unity, just for a moment anyway. <laughs> just for a moment. Well, as we come to our father's word here, we should be entertaining some unity here. Because he is over us. And he unites us. 
And just as we saw with the other members of the Trinity, God is omnipresent, and He is with all believers together. And the Father, He, he was there creating us and choosing us, and so He is also uniting us. The same God who is sovereign is the same God who has called us together. The same God who said uh, that... Um, you guys would be here and that I would be in Savannah, but at a certain point, I would be here. God unites us and he does that as he wills. And so that should help us to extend grace to one another as we are thinking through conflict. And God is also in all believers, as Paul says. That Christ fills all in all. The Holy Spirit fills believers. Well, the Father is in the church, too. The Father is in the church. Obviously, He is, but that's, it's worth noting here. He's not a God. This is not a God who is far away. He is a God who is at hand. This is a comfort to us as we struggle through our own issues here. So let's think about this as we close. We're learning about how God is building His church in this book. And now we're faced with the first set of practical issues. And these issues, I hope you see, all come back to the gospel and what we believe about God. It's already, it's already been made clear in these opening verses. If it were not for the work of the Lord, we would neither have unity nor even care to properly walk in this world. And so it all starts with the gospel and what he has done. But with these practical issues come questions. Are you, are you walking with a worthy walk? Is your walk characterized as worthy by having all humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another in love? Is there a diligence to preserve the unity? If not, repent from any false ways that you may have in which you may have been walking. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins while you repent, but seeking His grace to help you walk according to Scripture.